Good enough. Rolling. And we're rolling. Rolling. Rolling, rolling, rolling. <laughs> Keep rolling, rolling, rolling. No, that's Indeed. for later. We're going to yeah. talk about rolling later. Was that uh, Limp Bizkit? Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 That's good that shit. was my... Uh, Is that really my... a Limp Bizkit song? Yeah. Can I share something really embarrassing with you? See, what? I feel like, Please. like I mean, not just because I'm black, I should know, like, you know, the, the canon of hip hop and rap. But I thought I thought that was like an old school, like R&B song from like, you know, people of color. You know, I mean, it's possible it, they it, ripped it off. It is. Possible. Oh, yeah. It's possible. It's a sample, right? I okay. have, I don't know. You got to ask uh, Brett and Brian about that one. Unless it's some Mandela effect thing where like. Have you imagined that it's a sample, but it really is an original song from them? I think. I mean, I don't. the The song itself is not a sample because Fred Durst is um, is speaking those words. Uh-huh. But, uh huh. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. That it's possible that he got it from somewhere. Damn, I got to dock some uh, some black points from from myself, man. According You're not to obligated to know about Limp Biscuit. Yeah. That's true. According to Wikipedia, it was created through a collaborative effort with hip hop producer Swizz Beats. Although okay, some, okay. Yeah, yeah. Look at that. Yeah. Mm. Although sometimes referred to as a hip hop remix, the Urban Assault Vehicle version of the song was actually the first version that was created. Wow. Wow. Don't say. Yeah. See, it is a Mandela effect thing, man. You learn something new every day. Oh, there's something every day. Okay, I didn't know this, but they filmed the music video on top of the South Tower of the World Trade Center in September 2000. (laughs) Wait, when? September 2000. One year before. Whoa. Whoa. Yo, Mm -hmm. why is the FBI or the CIA not like hitting up Lip Biscuit, man? And what if they got questioned? (laughs) <laughs> okay, this is crazy. The Roland video received the award for best rock video at the 2001 MTV Music Awards. On September 10th, 2001, the day before the Twin Towers were destroyed, Limp Biscuit received a letter and a fruit basket from the Port Authority of New York City thanking them for featuring the Twin Towers in the video and congratulating the band after the video had what? won the VMA. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if you're Limp Biscuit, like you're holding on. Like if I'm Fred Durst, I'm holding on to that for the rest of my life. Passing that's it a down. piece of history. Yeah, September 10th. Thank you for your homage to our glorious buildings. And less than 24 hours later, they're fucking dirt. <laughs> <laughs> so that was so that was the last Aww. thing that was ever filmed there. It's <laughs> it's like the guy who it's like the guy who uh, had a perfect bowling game on like September 11th, yo. Like completely yeah. innocuous, but just a great achievement, man. What a horrible. Just, yeah, game. yeah, so yeah. So what you're trying to say is Limp Biscuit did 9/11. Yeah, it basically <laughs> they were they were an integral part for sure. There's a lot of moving parts in 9-11. You know, it's like a Robert Altman film. Like, there's a whole ensemble cast, and Fred Durst is obviously part of it. Osama Bin Laden saw that video, and he was like, this is the last straw. (laughs) It could have been. Western culture has gone too far. You gotta, you you know, think that, It's decadent. It's depraved. Right. If Bush didn't do 9-11, if it really was Al-Qaeda, that means they really had a conversation about, like, what's the best thing to take down? Uh, Like, they were spitballing. They had a whiteboard and some, like, butcher paper, and they were taking down ideas. Someone's like, Lincoln Memorial, like... God damn it, fucking idiot. No one's gonna be no one's gonna mourn the Lincoln. No one's Memorial. gonna care about that shit. He's like, what? I'm just offering 
Nah, and then there's a scene where someone throws a dart and it lands right on the World Trade Center and they're like, uh-huh. yes, or, the World Trade Center. It could have been, uh, honestly, could have been that like Osama bin Laden went to bed and he was troubled that they didn't, hadn't identified one yet, hadn't picked one yet. And he turned on MTV and saw all the... Ro- the limp biscuit the roller, roller roller video. video and was it came to him in a flash like an epiphany he was like i fucking got it get, yes. wake everyone up everyone get everyone up get them in the conference room i have the best idea deciding oh do i jump in now and ruin the fun with my cheesy introduction (laughs) but yeah um well that's the thing it's like trying to integrate it's like getting a fade like you're trying to work the two in together you know like the high and the low you're trying to create a gradient a smooth gradient Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i don't know i still don't know how to do that after it's not after easy. all these years after my many long years of being a podcaster mm-hmm. um but yeah this is uh everybody loves communism mm-hmm. as you probably know if you you know clicked on it and are listening to it now uh and we're here with i mean i'm jamie obviously and this is aaron i'm aaron Hi, and y'all. We're here with Terrence Ray, good friend of the show from the Trailbilly Workers Party. Indeed. How how are you doing, Terrence? Is that like a fucked up icebreaker question to ask in this day and age? It's not a fucked up icebreaker question to ask. Um, I'm doing all right. I'm doing better than I was two or three weeks ago. That's for mm. sure. I you know I live in the Kevin Costner movie. Uh, what's that movie where everything's water? Was it just Water, water World? world. Yeah. yeah. I live in that movie. Oh, boy. But if everyone, if they drain the water, does it make sense? <laughs> like, yeah. there should be a sequel yeah. to Water World where there's no more water. There's just, like, everything that the water it, left It's behind. just called World. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> it's just World. <laughs> oh, what shit. a world it is. I and what a world, world. is it? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Oh shit! Yeah, so uh, we uh, we wanted to have you on for that reason specifically mm. uh, because there's been some flooding. It's been some flooding in Eastern <laughs> Kentucky. I yeah. don't know if it's just that I don't read the news enough because I'm doing a history and theory podcast right now. Mm. But mm. I definitely learned about it for the first time when you guys went on Chapo. Mm. Yeah, I was like looking around for something to listen to. I'm like, oh, the Trillbillies are on Chapo. That's that's cool. I like yeah. those guys. And then uh, I was like, oh, shit. I don't know if that's typical. I don't know if everyone but me like found out about <laughs> it from the news immediately. But my own brother yeah. didn't know about it until he heard us talk about it on our show. Like, as he yeah. listens to our show. He was like, dude, I had no fucking idea. He hadn't seen it in the news or anything. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say crazy. I was going to say my mom's watches uh watches the news and she found out about it, I guess, from like CNN or something, you know, but from like, I mean, obviously local news wasn't talking about it and CNN would have like a segment on it and then they would skip to talking about whatever else was going on in national politics. 
So yeah. it was like barely covered, you know? Yeah. Well, like 20 years ago, 15, actually, even as recent as 10 years ago, like a big news story would have been to, it's like, a, it was like a kind of like liberal gotcha where it's like, I remember they did this after Bevin was elected governor and they were going to roll back the Kentucky Connect like Medicaid, Medicare market, like, uh, or mm -hmm. ACA market. And they like went and interviewed like poor people in Eastern Kentucky to like basically be like, you voted for this asshole. Uh, what do you have to say about it? Like they basically try to do like a Jesus gotcha, like Christ. Get, Jesus, get like poor people to like answer for Matt Bevin and stuff. Uh, but they can't really do that anymore. If they were able to do that, um, then you would have heard more about it probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, now they voted for the good party because there's one of those You're right. guys. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> their uh their souls are clean. You yeah. Know, especially especially all the people who just like don't vote because yeah, they have exactly. more pressing matters on their minds. Uh you know, they they can sleep easy now knowing that they didn't cause a natural disaster. We, Absolutely. We we may not even have the election in my county this this November. Like the what? I think multiple poll stations were destroyed and to at least two poll workers died in the floods. What? So like we may not even have an election <laughs> this year. And and knowing and knowing like the response already, like, you know, them even bothering to open up another polling cent you know, location. Like yeah. I couldn't even imagine it, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's uh, it's so it's uh, yeah, t it goes to your point, Jamie. People are just dealing with a level of insanity that is really like it keeps you so occupied and busy. Like you don't have fucking time to vote. Nobody fucking mm -hmm. votes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah. So I really liked your article, Terrence. That oh, thank you, wrote you for the baffler. Thank you. Um, I learned a lot. I liked your analysis. Um, you know, I'm biased because communist, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's right. um, let's unpack this idea a little bit of a natural disaster yeah. or an act of God, right? Because you know, people up to and including that uh, that angelic Democratic governor have been talking about it like. Nobody knows why this keeps happening to, especially to poor communities. It's just really, right. uh, really unfortunate. Mm -hmm. And not a lot of people are talking about the, uh, shall we say, man-made aspect of yeah. this. So, um, yeah, let's unpack the idea of natural disaster and the factors other than God yeah. that contributed to this historic and deadly flood. Mm. Um, okay, well, so this is, as you said earlier, a theory in history podcast. Um, I recently read that book, Fossil Capital, by Andreas Malm. Have y'all have y'all read it yet? Mm, no, we but I not. heard you talking about it. I remember you talking about it on the other show. Um, it's pretty good. I mean, I've heard people critique him especially because he just put out a book called How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And so I don't know. I heard of that one. Yeah. I heard I that mean, was good. I agree conceptually with 
blowing up pipelines, but it, I also kind of get sussed out by people who say that kind of stuff in public. So yeah, I don't that's know. some like fetch it. That's some yeah, off shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I don't, I don't yeah. know. But I did like Fossil Capital, um, because it's kind of got an interesting thing. At the very beginning, he's talking about how like social theorists in the 20th century, especially towards like the mid and late 20th century. They're like their object of study switched. It used to be time. It used to be history, um, and it switched to space. And you got a, like this rise in geography as like a discipline and sort of Marxism that became like a really popular one. And I was like, "That's crazy. I'd never thought of that before. Uh, the idea had never occurred to me before." But um, I think he points that out because he's basically trying to demonstrate how like a, a a piece of coal uh is kind of like i know it's sort of cliche to point out but it's like fossilized time like yeah. when you come when you burn it you are combusting time you're engaging in a kind of like dialogue or interaction with the last millions and millions of years um and so like it is a kind of interesting thing to think about because a lot of the things that made this flood as bad as it was all occurred like, let's say like 25 to 30 years ago. Like strip mining was a thing that started here in the fifties because the UMWA was uh, trying to negotiate a contract and the UMWA leader, John Lewis, as part of the contract negotiation, was like, all right, um, we want raises for the miners. We want, you know, the healthcare system and everything. Um, but, like, part of the negotiation was that he had to start allowing the mechanization of the coal industry. Mm. Um, so he kind of sold down future coal, you know, down the road, future coal miners for, like, the benefits of, the, of those ones at the time. And so, like, strip mining <clears throat> took off in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But then they tried to regulate it in the early 80s with this thing called the Surface Mine Control and Reclamation Act. It was passed by Jimmy Carter. Mm -hmm. And it's weird because after that act, like, after that attempt to regulate coal mining, their surface mining, like, the land area... Uh, that was removed in surface mining, like exploded, like exponentially, wrong, especially wrong. in the nineties when they went back and modified it, it created this kind of strip mining called mountaintop removal where like they were no longer just going up there with drag lines and tearing the mountain down. They now would like go up and detonate these massive tracts of land and then and then take drag lines and then you apply for a permit to fill to put all of that material into the river and so they're this, blowing mountains up basically they were yeah yeah they were they don't really do it anymore um i mean there's all a the lot of reasons have been removed yeah all yeah it's all <laughs> like removed part of it is like they got them all they got it all yeah, they, like literally like part of it is in the 90s they knew that they had depleted a lot of the easiest to reach coal seams and that the easiest way to do that, to continue extracting coal really cheap was through mountaintop removal. So it was this kind of like weird 
combination or conjunction of like mechanization, but also ecological limits. Mm -hmm. And it created this kind of, it created this form of mining called mountaintop removal. And so you've got some mountaintop removal mines that are so fucking huge that you can put modern American cities on them and have enough room. Like we're talking about, we're talking about, you know, millions of fucking acres. Like it's a lot of fucking land that they had, they had removed. And so, anyways, in like the early 2010s, the price of coal started to dip below the price of natural gas. And that basically killed central Appalachian coal. Like they do some coal mining in West Virginia about like metallurgical coal for making steel. But the kind of coal we have here for burning coal for energy, like it just wasn't uh, profitable anymore. Mm. And so the coal industry has basically left but we still feel the effects of it when you get like a one in a thousand year rain event that drops like 15 or 16 inches of water in an hour or in in, in 24 hours and uh and so that's that's a major part of what happened what of why the you know why the floods were so not only uh devastating but like as i've said before i think i said it on chapo like i think people tend to think of floods as like oh the water's rising but like this yeah. was an uh an event where we, you had rushing water like basically shooting down like haulers and um like carrying people and ha- homes and everything with it uh so you know you can go out to haulers out here and you can still see rivers with houses in them like they like they entire houses got picked up and moved. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's I, like something out of a Looney Tune. No, it yeah. is. It's like it's, it's hard absurd. to imagine it in any other way. Yeah. 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 I mean I was g- or go ahead. Go ahead, Terrence. No, go ahead, Terrence. Uh, well, all I was gonna say is that like a lot of people can say, like, oh, places flood. Uh, especially a place like Eastern Kentucky where like the topography is very tight. Like there's um, this place is like bisected or dissected a plateau. So, I mean, it's not like mountain mountains. Like you think like out West, like you've just got haulers in this larger plateau. And so um, usually the mountains and the vegetation would be able to absorb a lot of that water. But when you've removed that much land and when you've not only removed all that land, but put that land in the rivers, like the water has nowhere else to go. Absolutely. So it becomes this dangerous thing. I, I was just thinking like while you were talking that, um, you know, I didn't know that like Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky could flood like that. Like when I was talking to my mom, she said the same thing, you know. Yeah. And even after you guys explained about the confluence of the rivers and the land and everything and how the water, the land couldn't absorb the water, all of these factors. I think that like the same way that you don't like you don't really know that water, like a deluge of water can move cars, homes until you actually experience that. Yeah. I think generally like. Like, um, maybe this is an original thought, but I think about climate change as the ambient background noise of, like, our modern society. Like, but it's happening on a time. And you started out with time talking about thinking how things were thought of as in sense of time at first, but then it moved to geographically, right, space. I think that, like, we kind of neglect to think about climate change because it is such a long process. Yeah. But it's even a process that happens within people's lifetimes, right? 
you know, because all of this mountaintop removal, this is something that happened like within my lifetime. Right. Yeah. But still, because not everyone experiences uniformly and just the way we experience time, it's something that just gets lost where it becomes about, well, this is a natural disaster. This was bound to happen, which is like insane because it's anything but natural. Right. It's man made. Right. Or exacerbated, at least by that. Right. Yeah. Now we shaped the the land and uh and i think humans always have right like haven't they even you know there was the idea that the native americans were pure and they lived in this state of pristine nature and they never touched the environment but they were shaping the environment like the biodiversity of the amazon is so rich because of the indigenous people there like uh you know affecting the environment and they used to do controlled burns in north america i mean the mm. the point is is that like we shape our environment how are we going to do it you know I'm for sorry. what i mean it's it's like really it's really it's it's a tragedy honestly it's very sad mm. to think about in the grand historical sense because it is i mean blowing up mountains destroying people's homes for yeah. uh you know for the rock in the ground like that is really crazy to think about, um, but it is a reality, or it was for a long time, and it still is for a, a lot of people around the world. Yeah, and in addition to that, like we're also shaping the climate, like obviously, yeah, with all these uh, human activities contributing to climate change. Weather's getting crazier and more fucked up, and I feel like it's happening in ways that are now very obvious to yeah. the naked eye. Like this, in New York the other day, there were cars floating down the street after a big after a big rain, and that's not something that <laughs> used to happen. Right. Uh, I didn't even notice. I was like, oh, I guess it's raining outside. I went to bed, and I woke up, and I saw the videos. I was like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Well, I mean, and in Pakistan, just last night, there was bad floods in Italy. I think that, um, like, 10 are dead or something like that. I mean, it's oh, it's been a crazy summer. It's been floods, and then China had one of the most intense droughts <laughs> I think it had ever had. And so... Yeah. Uh, and a heat wave, you know? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's it's uh, it's 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 really interesting to think about. We talked about it on the show, but like the first news crew to arrive was the Weather Channel. <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> I think that like I read this thing about them that they're like the new vice kind of because like they've got this business model for like the new world where like, you know, chaos and. And uncertainty and everything is going to be like really advantageous for them. Yeah. So you know, like, you know what they're going to be like. Go ahead, Jamie. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think Kurt Vonnegut predicted that <laughs> in like the '80s when he mm. said that uh, in the future the weathermen are going to be winning Pulitzer <laughs> prizes and whatnot. And everyone thought that was really funny at the time. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's like it's like you know how um, with Vietnam and then the Iraq War. How the 24-hour news cycle, kind of starting with Vietnam, kind of got like a uh, like an injection, a shot in the arm, yeah. and then again with like 9/11, the Iraq War, where now we're watching sleek mechanized war, and that's all <laughs> anybody was watching. Now it's just gonna be like like elite news stations sending out weatherbed, still sending them out into flooding. Because mm. <laughs> sometimes when oh, I yeah. look at them, I'm like, dude, this guy's like looks like he's got to get about to get blown away on this beach, man. Like, why do it? But no, man, it's profitable now, I guess, right? It, yeah, it is. 
Very much so. <laughs> and and just like Vice, you know, they're going to send them into uh, really intense places <laughs> and maybe not help them out very much right. when they get into trouble. Pay them 30000 a year. Like, yeah, you're good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, like uh, how many people are going to have to drown before they uh, form a weatherman's union? <laughs> indeed, indeed work, yeah. I, maybe they'll combine the business models and they'll start sending their weatherman to crazy news events, but also making them do LSD and other things in the process. Like making them uh, do ayahuasca while they're covering like a derecho. It's like, uh, oh or maybe MDMA as we'll get to in the bonus. Uh, but uh, uh, Terrence, I, I mean, wanted to. That'd be an okay way to go. Yeah. <laughs> that would be too bad. I wouldn't be disappointed in that. Jamie, did you want to. I want to pivot to another kind of question real quick. Did you want to ask something um, about ecological stuff yeah like before we move on i think Mm -hmm. there's also um sort of an economic geography element to this that should definitely be remarked upon um i know uh i think you quoted the governor saying like oh why does this always happen to the poorest communities that's so sad yeah why does this always happen to the poorest communities is it that the poor people live in places that are more prone to being destroyed? That's definitely the case here in eastern Kentucky. And not only, like, that would be one thing. It would be one thing if they lived in the places that were more prone to being destroyed because, um, you know, with architectural technology, this, that, and the other, we may have ways to deal with some of that. But they at the same time, live in the floodplains in housing that is sub-sub-substandard. Like, literally, I mean, in a trailer home, right? So, in a trailer home, the walls are basically made of paper. The whole fucking Mm -hmm. thing is extremely, uh, like, the materials on it are not going to keep water out. The whole thing itself Mm -hmm. is not even going to stay put during a flood. Mm -hmm. And that's why so many houses were moving. And, uh, I mean, Tom's sister and nephew basically got swept along in the water from their house. I mean, this was, um, you know, it, it, you're exactly right, Jamie. Like, they, they, they don't make efficient and safe housing in the first place. Um, but then they also put that equipment or you know that that housing infrastructure in the floodplain in the direct line of fire and like you know i don't really know the case with western kentucky because like Bashir's quote was also mentioning western kentucky but it doesn't take like the the tornadoes that happened there in december but it doesn't take like a fucking rocket scientist to know that like wealthy people have more resources they own more land they own more property they're going to be safer just in general from anything mm-hmm. that happens. They they can go under the house. They have a bunker or they own the mountaintop or, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, uh, yeah. they just are, again, it's just common fucking sense. Like the fact that you just can't name it says everything. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> um, Jamie, did you want to add anything? Uh, No. Okay. Did you have somewhere you wanted to go from there? Yeah, yeah. I kind of think this is kind of related to like Terrence talking about like um like uh 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 and your question Jamie about like 
well, you just happen to live in that area, right? Like these, this is kind of like politics of like victimization and blame, I guess. Yeah. So, um, Terrence, on our other show, uh, The Trillbillies, uh, I guess a running theme that we have is melding the personal and the sociopolitical to present this like multi-narrative of what it's like to live in the American South, right? But um, yeah, yeah. after the flood, um, as we were just talking about, there's this unfortunate, and you mentioned in the piece, there's this unfortunately common sentiment that somehow Eastern Kentucky personally deserved this because they voted for Trump or because they support or vote for a um, climate denying party, right? Um, now, like, I mean, obviously this is like enraging to hear people say this shit, but like, why is it also like flawed? And I guess more importantly, how does this quote natural disaster framing combine with this these politics of victimization? Because I was thinking about this the other day. I think that like it normalizes disasters like this, right? And even normalizes their natural causes. So like, how does that normalization kind of happen as we're seeing more frequent and more extreme weather events? Well, so it's weird. I think that most people, when they experience something like this, it's just natural. Like you're going to look for someone to blame. Mm. Um, I mean, there are maybe a few exceptions. I'm trying to think of one, like, mm. I guess a tornado, but even then to like the increasing frequency of tornadoes is due to climate change. Like mm. a lot of these things, I think if something like this happens to you, you're going to want to look for, uh, somewhere to point the blame. Yeah. And it's, I think that, like, as you said, it's kind of like the, I mean, the word itself is literally in the phrase, but it naturalizes it, but it also depoliticizes it. Mm. And I think that is a thing that, let me just, let me just put it this way. Mm. Like I've talked to people in the aftermath of this who literally did hear that canard that, the people that lived here deserve this because they voted for Trump. And that made them very angry. And I think that the left, you know, I know that we're not really an institutional entity, uh, but I don't think that we want to be associated with the people who are saying anything remotely similar to that. And I think that most people here intuitively know that the Democrats feel that way. Mm-hmm. And so that's why that's it's a dangerous thing. That's why it's a very dangerous thing, I think, that for like the left to be, you know, associated in any way with the Democrats. Like that was, I guess, the gamble with Bernie. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a very dangerous thing because if you're trying to win over these people, if you're trying to win over the people that, uh, you know, that, have been completely forgotten by everyone but the Republicans, I guess, mm. um, who are obviously using them cynically. Like, you're not going to do it that that way. I mean, that's just common <laughs> sense. Mm. But um, It's like the liberal version of saying that, like, New York got hit by a hurricane because there's gay people here. Yeah, it Something is. Like yeah. That. Yeah. That's, you're yeah. exactly right. Yeah, it, that's it, the same thing. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of like a metaphysical thing. Like, it's very, it's very non-materialist, right? Like, that mm. is the thing. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I just think that people are very angry, and um, no one is harnessing any of that anger. Mm. Uh, they're either scolding them or, 
I don't know. There are people harnessing it, right? Like, again, mm-hmm. the fascists, like, they're fucking mm-hmm. trying to anyways. And But that's not to say that they're succeeding. I don't know. Like, the fucking... The, like, there was a, a Nazi rat, like, a, like a back in the day of, like, the traditionalist workers' party and, like, that stuff. Like, there was an, a rally just 30 minutes down the road here in eastern Kentucky. And everybody was, like, freaking out, like, you know, the Nazis are coming to East Kentucky, like they're fine, they're gonna be able to organize here. Mm. This is their natural base. And it's like, dude, nothing has worked here. Like not, the <laughs> last time the last time literally, the last time anything worked here was when the communists were trying to organize the National Miners Union in like bloody Harlan. That's the last oh, yeah. fucking time. Like in the nineteen <laughs> thirties. So it's like that's it's like it's, I mean it's these are yeah, people that luck. They've been forgotten. They've been completely uh, sacrificed at the altar. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we just read a book about the Rev, sort of a speculative mm-hmm. fiction book that you yeah. probably like. And um, like a lot of the way that people get political power, you know, in this uh, near future collapse that's happening is providing for people's material needs. And there is a part of the country where the fascists are able to do that. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, they hold on to power for a little while. But it turns out that communism is actually better at that in a lot of different ways, in addition to being, you know, a non-horrifying way to organize <laughs> society. Right. But... um yeah, if people, it, it really starts with that. If people can't do that, then like they can just fuck off, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, but, yeah, um, yeah. Okay. You 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 mentioned the anger, and I had a question about this at the end because you know we always like to end on the 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 future, but yeah. you're talking about it now, so um, let's keep going. Uh, you you're talking about like people are really pissed off. Uh, do you think? that this anger has revolutionary potential, the potential to create class consciousness and, you know, get people thinking about fighting the real enemies that did this to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to say. So I think that there's always the potential for that. Um, but... Will it, you know, what direction will it be uh, sort of pointed in, I guess, is the is the question that's always, like, that was the, that's been the case with, I think, a lot of different uprisings over the last 10 years. Um, like, there is a spark, something insane happens, and then, like, maybe political, you know, actors or whatever try to rush in after the fact and try to claim it this way or the other. I mean, but... I don't know. I, I say that. I don't. I guess I'm getting off topic. But I like thinking about the, like them burning down the police station. It's mm-hmm. like that. I think I, was an obvious symbol of like working class uh, despair and anger. And is that gonna? Is anything like that gonna happen in East Kentucky anytime soon? I'd say probably not. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, and like even trying to unpack them is a very very difficult thing that I feel like I've spent a lot of the last five years trying to understand, but here's my attempt at it. Um, I think Eastern Kentucky 
and a lot of places in central Appalachia and rural America. Let me just, I guess you could just generalize it like that. Like a lot mm-hmm. of places in rural America, they have a very like top down, um, like heavily policed right wing sort of like hegemonic structure. Like there are business leaders. Some of them are in extractive business. Some of them are in healthcare and services, but regardless, like the one thing that they can't allow is for workers to organize. Mm-hmm. And so they sort of police all aspects of the community um, with all kinds of like soft power, like, you know, in the sort of Gramscian sense, but also mm-hmm. literally with policing, like where I live is heavily policed. Our jail mm-hmm. is always I mean, we have 60 beds in our jail and there's always twice as many people in that as at any given moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that those aspects of this, that they make that really difficult for people in rural areas to organize. But then if you were to get organized, where would you direct your anger towards? I mean, yeah. that's the thing, like you can organize your health clinic but then if you go on strike, like that's going to tear the community apart. And, um, and that has happened here before. There's been healthcare worker strikes and the, the Brookside mining strike, you know, in, blood, in Harlan County, USA in the 70s. Um, it's just the social fabric of a small rural community is, is a lot more febrile sometimes. And that makes it very difficult for a kind of like revolutionary uh, politics in a revolutionary situation to happen. Um, but I do think that the material conditions are all there for something like that to happen, especially now. I mean, you've got a, a, a number of displaced people that this region hasn't seen, yeah, probably since the 20s or 30s. Like, people that are, uh, you know, set up in uh, tent camps. That's again, that's not something that's very common sight. That is a common sight for a lot of people in urban areas, but that's not something that's that common in rural areas. And uh and so the housing question is something that is very um you know, prevalent right now. And uh and yeah, I don't know. It's just I probably didn't answer your question, Jamie, but it's just um it's a very difficult thing to try to pull apart. And you've also got to keep in mind though like this is something I've thought about a lot. It, it, this goes back to this is like kind of dialectical. This goes back to what we were saying earlier about mountaintop removal. When the coal industry entered its like in game, like Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls it, like organized abandonment. Abandonment. When they entered that in game, they at the same time tried to um, sort of coordinate or coalesce their own hegemony during that very precarious moment where like just even a little bit of worker organization or strike would have toppled the whole fucking thing probably like Mm. dominoes to make sure that everybody was in line and that everyone was in lockstep uniform uh, you know everything they launched this thing called the friends of coal campaign and so the friends of coal campaign was 
it was basically a propaganda campaign. It started in the 90s, but it really took off in the 2000s under Bush. And and it kind of like reached its apex under Obama because they said Obama was waging a war on coal. But the whole point of it was like, are you with coal or are you against coal? And what this was, was a it was a collaboration between the UMWA and the CEOs. And so you had labor and the bosses coordinating basically like working together to i mean i'm not saying like the rank and file workers but like mm -hmm. the union leaders for sure like cecil roberts these people fucking sold these communities uh down the river mm -hmm. and um that created a a reactionary kind of environment here a paranoid environment here for about 15 years that lent itself to a kind of like reactionary politics and and that's why and i wrote this thing last year about um, the drug war here. That's mm. why they were able to do that the way they did it with people basically being dragged out of their homes in front of TV cameras, in front of communities to basically be the face of what had, uh, you know, making, make, uh, made this region what it was and to sort of be the scapegoats for all of our ills and despairs. And so like that created an environment that made any kind of even left adjacent politics basically impossible. And so um, you've, I think that what that caused was a lot of people to just, you know, deep, become depoliticized in general. Like they don't, mm. they're not yeah. voting. They're not even really thinking it, of mm. it in those mm. terms. So they, mm. they do get angry, but uh, they know that there's nothing you can do with that anger. And mm. so, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just again, it's it's a very it's a very like fascinating like sociological uh, thing to think about, but it is something that is uh I think representative of what a lot of rural America has experienced in the last 20 or 30 years or so. Yeah. 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 I feel like I, we need like a, a a chime that goes off every time someone says the D word. Yeah. In this podcast. Because, <laughs> uh, I don't know. It seems pretty relevant to everything that we're always talking about. I uh, still got a little bit of PTSD from arguing with my former boss about what depoliticization <laughs> actually is. Uh, but yeah, um, you mentioned law enforcement, and I want to dig into that a little bit more. Because that is another one of our bailiwicks here yeah. on this show. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, in your piece, you talk about the aggressive response by law enforcement during this horrible disaster that people are already having to deal with a lot in the midst of. Um, they did. They made a public curfew and enforced it. A public curfew. I don't know. A curfew. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> They talked publicly about how they were going to crack down on looting, mm -hmm. saying, um, you know, can't wait to, like, shoot these motherfuckers or whatever. I'm paraphrasing, yeah. but you, it, it was implied. Uh, Absolutely. And you write in your piece, quote, this immediate rush toward a law and order crackdown is probably as good a harbinger of the new climate crisis paradigm than any other thing I've witnessed, end quote. So why do you think the state is responding to the crisis in this way? And why do you think that's going to be the paradigm going forward? <laughs> the simplest answer is because they have to maintain the class hierarchy somehow. But natural disaster abolishes 
private uh, property distinctions. Like by its very nature and logic, it can destroy private property. And so mm. if your shit is in the creek, someone has to be able to, for this whole thing to, for, you know, capitalist social relations, property relations to continue on the same basis, someone has to police that. And I think that's why they step in and immediately just start saying shit like that. Like, I mean, I think quite literally they spread the lies themselves. I think they mm -hmm. literally spread the rumors that there's looters. Like I mm -hmm. was getting text messages literally hours after the flooding saying that, Oh, there's looters. And it's like, who the fuck are you talking about? Like, were there looters after we dropped a bomb on Nagasaki? Like that that's what it's yeah. like. It's like having yeah. a bomb dropped on your computer community. Like no one's yeah. fucking thinking about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe two weeks afterwards, maybe they'll start start thinking about that. Mm -hmm. I don't fucking mm -hmm. know. But like But in the immediate aftermath, no, no way. Yeah, no, exactly. So like it just made me think that the cops themselves were probably spreading that that shit. Mm -hmm. And they do do that. I mean, it's a documented thing. They, they're terrorists. They terrorize our lives. Um, but I, I found all kinds of, um, like, academic, like, sociological studies that have proven, of you know, I mean, not that you need proof, but it is interesting, proven how, A, prevalent that is after a disaster like this, but, B, how false it is. And... It's just, again, it's just a fascinating thing to look at. It's like mass hysteria, right? Like you, you can see how ridiculous it is, but a lot of people, uh, other people can't. It's, uh, it's really yeah. wild. Um, so I think that's the thing. I think they have to reify that. They have to maintain that somehow. Um, and yeah. yeah, also, I mean, we've just criminalized just the nature, the logic of, law enforcement in general, we've criminalized survival strategies. And that includes selling drugs to selling copper. I mean, like every survival strategy you would need to have to be able to make it in the informal market after you've been like deproletarianized, or I don't know if the word is still acceptable or not, but like lumpenized basically. Like you're gonna you're going to be in the informal market. And so that means I mean, the rules for that are a lot more fucking cutthroat than they are in just, you know, your normal job labor market. And um, but we've criminalized all of those aspects. We've criminalized all of those uh, survival strategies that you would need to basically not get completely uh, pulled under. And so I think that's just the nature of law enforcement yeah. in general. But it becomes so heightened at a moment after yeah. a disaster like that. Yeah, a lot of the time, uh, people who are portrayed as looters are just, like, getting food. But, you know, when poor people do it, that's looting. Um, mm -hmm. It, it kind of reminds me, too, of um, the way that immigrants and asylum seekers are being treated as we... Uh, Oh, yeah. Towards this uh, secular collapse. Yeah, it's like, like it's their fault or something. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, that's exactly, that's the perfect analogy because it's like, like oh, yeah, you had this shitty thing happen to you. Well, mm -hmm. sorry. I mean, yeah, but I, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's an exterminist uh, regime yeah, in it some is. ways, right? Like mm -hmm. the border regime will become uh, an exterminist policy as. Various places in the world become 
less and less hospitable to human life, right. even in a place like New York City, right? Like the other day, our uh, our black Democrat mayor, his administration, said that New York's right to shelter law, which I didn't even know existed. I mean, good for New York that they ever had that. Yeah. Um, he's saying it should be reassessed in the face of an increased influx of asylum seekers. And that just all seems part and parcel of the same phenomenon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's probably why they're also making those like nuclear warning PSAs. They're like, let's prepare for every scenario. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So, so Terrence, I kind of want to, I'm kind of thinking about like how to ask this question, but I think it, I want you to talk about the just transition, but also the state response from FEMA, because I think these two things are kind of related, right? Because um, in your piece, you briefly mentioned the just transition, which, uh, quote, its plan was to rejuvenate the region through entrepreneurship, innovation, tourism and public private partnerships. Um, but it only ended in, quote, burdensome bureaucratic paperwork, insufficient or rejected requests for insurance payouts, perhaps some downtown beautification projects here and there. And mayors and congressmen rubbing shoulders with governors to clinch grant uh, grant handouts. So basically, like the the just transition was supposed to, as you said, rejuvenate the region, but it only benefited a select few of people. Can you I guess first, can you talk about what the just transition a little bit more and who it benefited? And this is kind of a two parter. What what currently is the federal government um, doing? Because you mentioned that FEMA Right. Has uh, has been Biden declared um, a major disaster on the 29th of July. Yeah. But it was two days after until FEMA showed up. And then even then it didn't reach other counties until August 2nd. So I guess this is a large question about the state response. Talk about the just transition and kind of how you see that model um, of, I guess, I guess disaster capitalism kind of reproducing itself. And then if you can, too, talk about what the federal government itself, right, after claiming a major disaster, um, what they're doing right now mid-September. So, yeah, the just transition, um, everybody knew that coal mining was going away, especially around, I mean, it really hit people in the 90s. And, you know, they were able to d determine this just by the mechanization of the industry and people losing their jobs. Um, but the just transition was an idea that, like, we have to, I mean, the name itself comes from a kind of more leftist, um, NGO-adjacent uh sort of ideology but yeah. it it basically comes from an idea that something has to replace coal we should make sure that it is nicer than coal mm -hmm. and that the working conditions aren't uh they weren't even talking about working conditions they were mostly talking about like ecological concerns like pol stream pollution and stuff basically what it was was just a large discursive space about what can replace coal. Hmm. And there was all kinds of ideas, every under idea under the fucking sun. Um, I think that it kind of got really rolling once they reformed quote unquote welfare in the nineties hmm. because they, once they kicked everybody off the welfare rolls around here, that's when they really started saying like, all right, we need to really create new jobs for people that aren't just coal mining. Um, that 
none of those ideas or jobs ever materialized. The only thing that's even marginally replaced coal is healthcare. Like mm. there's a there's a good book that just came out. I feel like I've mentioned it in multiple places, but Gabriel, why not? It's hell called yeah. the, It's fucking good as shit. I it's interviewed co- him about oh, hell that yeah. book. Um the process that he line that he like talks about in that book basically happened here. It was a little different with some things here and there, but that's basically what happened here. That the way that coal went away made it sort of, yeah, like dialectically appropriate for the rise of healthcare as an industry here. And so that that's the so, only thing. Can I, can I just say I that is so completely, I mean, that is like vertical, what is, what do they call it? Like vertical integration almost, where yeah. like in this region of resource extraction, you poison people's bodies for generations. And then, and then on top of that, people start doing drugs and shit. You introduce all prescription drugs and then yeah. you capitalize on that yes. by having a healthcare industry. <laughs> that is, I'm sorry, that is just the sickest, it's crazy. <laughs> most macabre shit that I could think of it. It is really insane to think about, um, but uh, that's the only thing that's been able to replace coal. Like none of these other ideas ever materialized. Mm. The reason that there's a kind of like ideological weight to it is because I mean it's almost because of like the social geography or the spatial geography of Appalachia itself, Eastern Kentucky. Like we all live in such close proximity together that you were always rubbing elbows with the Mm -hmm. NGO people. You might have been a communist, but -hmm. you were going to be hanging out socially with the NGO people and even the coal miners and the conservatives and everything Mm -hmm. else. And so like 10, 15 years ago, the NGOs decided they were going to throw their lot in with any single group and individual that said it, it was looking for a brighter future. It didn't matter what the fuck that brighter future was. As long as it wasn't coal, it was good enough. Mm -hmm. And it was a compromise that they made, and it kind of blew up in their faces. It blew up in their faces with, like, Donald Trump because (laughs) they they had uh, created this sort of political space where you were either with them or with, like, coal, MAGA, or whatever. And... uh, and so um, they didn't do anything under Obama to actually bring this into reality. I mean, you talk about FEMA and the federal mm-hmm. government and the resources that can use. There's all kinds of shit that the federal government probably could have done if they were really serious about it to transition, quote unquote, people out of the coal industry into a new industry. The only thing that they did was provide grants here and there to like teach miners how to, co- how to code. And then again, none well, of so that's not just the meme. That's like I thought that was just a meme, dog. Yeah, like no, that literally was a fucking that, thing. That literally was a thing. And there's New York Times. <laughs> there's like literally stories about it. Um, and I cited it in a thing I wrote for the Baffler a few years ago. Like someone had dug into those to one of those grants and found out that it was like literally just like a Ponzi scheme. They hadn't hired any miners. It's it's and the and the government was paying for this kind of shit. Um, Jesus again, I Christ. don't mean to sound like a right winger, but it's it's kind of funny, honestly. Um, no, no, but I mean, like, like, so I guess, like, like, given that kind of response, then, right, um, with the just transition, I mean, let's even talk about direct because before we want to jump on to like we want to talk about mutual aid stuff, like, what is FEMA actually doing there right now, physically? 
in that location, like direct aid that they can do besides some bullshit just transition? Are they doing anything? Are they helping build shit for people? Yeah, like I know that the the state legislature passed a $213 million flood relief package. And yeah, same question. Where did that money go? Uh What's being done? And why is it uh, so inadequate? I would bet that a lot of that money winds up going to... So, again, this is something I've written about a lot. But in places like this, this is true for everywhere in America. It's probably true for the world, probably, pretty soon. But we live on prison planet. Like, there is no civic infrastructure that gets built anymore. It is only carceral infrastructure. (laughs) And so, like, the roads and bridges and shit were here were already really fucking bad. And so many of them got wiped out that I think that a lot of that aid package you just mentioned, Jamie, probably will just wind up going to, like, road construction. Things that they should have already been fucking doing for years and years and years. They just weren't. And so I th- I know there is a little bit of money in there for housing, but if I had to guess, I'd say it probably gets diffused through county governments that are probably going to use that money to patch holes elsewhere, or it goes through NGOs that, you know, there are some decent, like, you know, housing groups around here, like sort of leftovers from the war on poverty that will build low-income housing for people. Um, but I don't know what the interest rates are like on those mortgages. They could be, you know, exploitative too. I'm sure they are. Um, I, yeah, all of which is to say that there is a pre-existing ecosystem <clears throat> that this money will go to. It'll it'll make, like, community colleges, you know, go to line their pockets, go to... Uh, uh, NGOs go to county governments, but you know most regular people aren't aren't going to see any of that money. And that's the thing with FEMA. FEMA really only matters if you're a homeowner. I mean, Jesus if you Christ. if you fucking own a home, and because they give you a money amount of money, the the amount of money that they give you is not even that much. The most they can give you literally is thirty nine thousand dollars. That's the most they can give you. Um, and if you had your whole fucking house wiped out, which I know someone who has, that's not going to do shit. 39 grand is not going to do shit. Mm. Um, and so you're literally stuck. <clears throat> you don't know what to do. You mean, you could buy a new house. You could build it, buy a trailer house, put it on a proper, a piece of land for 90 grand, but that still leaves you 60 grand in the hole. So like, what the fuck are you going to do? Uh, mm. I think a lot of people are going to wind up moving. Um, they're not going to see any bit of relief or I mean, that's why it kind of creates this really surreal situation because everybody knows there's a, a limited finite amount of money and resources and they know that not everybody is going to get all that um and so yeah that's why it kind of creates a real situation i mean it, it is medieval it's like well if this happened to you good luck you know or, or some like mad or some like mad max shit right like it's like Literally, when you think of, like, the sci-fi trope of the dystopian, every man for himself, like, wading across, like, the wasteland, it's like, no, this is just, like, actually happens. Like, this is already an apocalyptic situation, dystopian situation for poor people. And it has been for decades, right? And if you rent, it sounds like you're just fucked. Completely. Mm -hmm. No one's helping you with housing. Or maybe there's some help, but there are really, really long wait lists. Uh, Cash assistance is 
scarce. Yeah, it's what it, it's weird because um, it's kind of like that student loan debt forgiveness thing. It's like there are apparently some renters insurance, like disaster, natural disasters renter insurance programs out there. But like, a you got to know about them. B mm-hmm. you got to be able to go through all this paperwork uh, to get it. Um, and I didn't even hear about that shit until like a week or two after the flood, you know, dog, it just rewards. It just seems like, you know, this means testing. It just rewards people who already have the time and the privilege, I can say to like, you know what I mean? Be able to find these resources. Like, dude, what if you have to like apply online? What if you don't have access, especially after a fucking flood that destroys infrastructure, you don't have access to reliable internet, you know what I'm saying? Or a phone or some shit, you know what I mean? Like, so you're just cutting out a bunch of people just because they don't, you know what I mean? What you think is accessible really isn't. Yeah. Kafka-esque as fuck. Yes, yes. Yeah, very much so. Very much. You mentioned um, this Mad Max everyone for themselves scenario, Aaron. And I think from what I hear, that's not entirely true, which is nice to know. I know that, Terrence, you've been working at a mutual aid hub. And a lot of people are working really hard to help out their neighbors in their time of need. So... How how have you seen just regular ass people stepping in to fill these gaps and what's what's going on there? Yeah. So, yeah, a group of friends, we, you know, started at first. It's crazy because you don't really have any idea what you're doing. Like at first we were like, what do we need to be doing? Where do we need to be going? A lot of what we were doing was literally driving around and getting like intel like talking to people and figuring out who needed what where because like the news isn't really able to report on minute stuff like that. Um, even if they did, I don't know if they would necessarily be doing it in service of, you know, like mutual aid basically. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was quite literally like the old days, like you go around to various communities and talk to people and see what they need and then go get supplies and then take it back out there. Um, and then that, so that was like the first three or four days. And, uh, and then, you know, we started getting a lot of donations and, and money and we started giving a lot of money out to people. And then it was like a week afterwards, you kind of had like a, a, a second deluge of, at this time, it was, like, people bringing items. And so, like, there were several distribution hubs around the county. And we kind of set up our own here at our office that we have in downtown Whitesburg and um, basically stocked it full of shit, and people would come by. we give them money and supplies. And, uh, and then we started about... It was probably about two weeks after the flood. Maybe, like... I'd say actually probably like a week, week and a half. It's weird because like my conception of time is so crazy around there. Mm-hmm. Like uh, we started like go- assembling volunteer crews <coughs> and helping like muck out people's homes. And you have to like gut it and cut out the drywall and, you know, put mold, uh, anti-mold spray on it. And, um, and yeah, so uh, <laughs> we did that for a few weeks and then we wound that down this past weekend. Um because we were running out of volunteers and I think some of us were getting sick. I myself got sick for a while Mm. for like a few days, I think because of the mold, like there was so Mm. much 
mold in these in these houses and in this building right now probably that I'm in. Like in the basement mm. of every building, there's probably mm. a fuckload mm. of black mold. Yeah. Uh and so um but but yeah, so but we're still running the mutual aid spot and trying to get money out to people. Um and uh and and again, still just gathering information about what people mm-hmm. need. Uh, because a lot of people, again, they just kind of fall through the cracks. You know, there's no one advocating for a lot of these people. And it's um, it, it, it's very uh, hard to see that. And um, But yeah, but it has been at the same time very... <coughs> that That is one of the things that is kind of like... I hesitate to even use the word bittersweet, but truly like something bad happens, you really do see, and it's corny and canned, but like people really do have this sort of natural inclination to, to help each other. And, um, and, and I think I remember thinking this, saying this, writing it right after the flood, but, and this has to do with the question of the police. It is fascinating how class hierarchies get kind of uh, reified during a moment like that, but how sometimes they get thrown out. And in those moments, you have a tendency to look at things, how they could be otherwise. Um, And, and like, I mean, it's kind of, you know, every time you find yourself having an argument like this at a party at like 3am on Coke, you're like very ashamed of it the next day about mm-hmm. like talking about like anarchism versus communism and all this stuff. But like, mm-hmm. I really was thinking about it a lot, like after that, because you really do in those moments, you see other ways that we could be. And, uh, and ways I think that, that, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Terrence. No, no, you go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, this is something that like, um, well, two things. One, um, Jorge, who's not here, has said this before, and I wish I could say it the way he said it, but he said in an episode, uh, me, him, and Jamie and I did, where I think he basically said that communism is like, it's it's like natural to us as human beings. And when I say communism, and I think Tom said something similar, it's just this idea of like these communal bonds and relations and just more even simply just giving a shit about another human being, regardless of what ostensible political views that they have. And I think Jamie had mentioned the book that um the speculative fiction book um about a New York commune, right, about uh, decades in the future after this revolution. And the way that like it, it, it just sort of people just fall back into what is natural to them, you know, and like these communes and assemblies um, and the abolition of police and the family, all of these things are kind of like second nature to people. And it just kind of makes me think in anthropology, you know, I wish I didn't finish school, but I really did like this um, course I took where I learned that when resources were more um, scarce, um, tribes banded together to secure those resources. And when they were more abundant, you would see more conflict, right? So I guess that's just to say that like when people are in need, we kind of just naturally just don't jump to, you know, we, we, we pull together, which is why it's, it's, it's really, I think it's, weird for the police this is why the police have to justify their existence right because they're not going to be the ones mucking people shit out they're not going to be the ones helping people right it's going to be us that are doing it Mm -hmm. so they have to create and incite this fear and suspicion of us and one another you know yeah i mean that's what keeps the system in place exactly you should never feel corny for talking about that by the way never (laughs) we are all about hashtag corny communism on this show and it's good and it's not cringe or maybe it is, but that's okay. (laughs) Exactly. That's good. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, 
I mean, it's complicated. Like, I, um, I don't know. It does seem to me that after something like this happens, a lot of people have this tendency to want to help each other. But then there are the police, and then there are also capitalists, because, I mean, if I had a fucking nickel for every goddamn, like, corporate, uh, like, greenwashing thing, I don't even know what I would call it, like, Duracell came here, like, Tide, like, Walmart, they, they sent down these, like, disaster response PR things, and, and then you see, like, all these NGOs trying to capitalize on it and contractors. It's disaster capitalism. The point mm. I'm trying to make is that it's all politics. And, like, there are... It shows the need for politics. It shows the need for uh, organization is really what it does. Mm. Um, because, again, as I pointed out, like, you can have all the mutual aid in the world and give out diapers and supplies and everything. But at the end of the day, you need, you need a worker state is what you need. You need some (laughs) way to, you need some way to ensure like communal ownership of property. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, because that's really what people need at a time like this. They need shelter and they need, uh, you know, they need a, a, a sense of community in a way that they can, um, help each other out. Otherwise, that natural tendency of ours to want to help each other out gets co-opted by various forces, gets misdirected in 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 ways. Um, I mean, it's really it's really sad to like go to some of the county-run um, distribution hubs in the days after the flood because it was total fucking chaos. I mean, that nobody. I mean, it was. <laughs> I don't know. It was like it was just. It was just. Uh, you had politicians coming in for like photo ops and people just, you know, using it cynically uh, for that kind of stuff. It was really uh, dispiriting. Um, mm-hmm. And that's bas- that's really why we decided to do our own thing is because like you see the way that um, power tries to sort of coalesce and and take advantage of this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's, that's basically why we decided to do something different. Oh, yeah. Well, well, Terrence, I want to, you kind of were talking about, um, like, uh, most importantly, what people need is like somewhere to actually live. Right. And that's how Mm -hmm. these communal bonds can kind of flower from that once people have that basic security. And, um, I guess it's a two part of question. I guess I'll start. And then Jamie has a related question to, uh, you said on the Trillbillies once that, uh, after the flooding that, um, because of the devastation wrought upon the land, by intense resource extraction that perhaps no one at all should be living there in the first place. And I've never thought about that before, right? I've never thought about the fact that like, well, I mean, you know, it's not about fortifying like people's homes. It's about the fact that like, yo, nobody should live there at all, given how dangerous, right? This, uh, this, this geographical area is. And, um, uh, we all know the likely answer, but, um, could you, could you ever see the state, undertaking this what would it even look like and um jamie actually has a similar question about uh yeah it's related as well yeah it kind of has echoes of mike davis like when he wrote back before it was really anyone else was saying stuff like this um you should just let malibu burn people shouldn't have giant houses up on these hills (laughs) madness to keep rebuilding it over and over again and got like you know pilloried by like the mayor 
for saying that, but yeah. you know, he was fucking right. Um, and furthermore, uh, you say, I really like this, uh, this part of your essay, uh, that, you know, everyone's talking about rebuilding, but maybe it's not such a good idea to rebuild the same society where this keeps on happening again and again and again. So yeah, yeah what would an actual recovery look like? Mm -hmm. And are there any openings to practice what some people might refer to as disaster communism, right? And build something better in its place. Well, it's like I said earlier, you have to have like, uh, like an administrative state that can ensure a communal property. But to do that, you have to do politics. You have to be organized. You have to have a vehicle that can channel the sort of frustrations and anger and rage and everything else into something that could change it. Um, but like ecology is a thing and you know, the question of like whether people should live in this region or not is, or in, in, in specific regions. I mean, um, capitalism at this point has made regions of the earth uninhabitable. Mm. Uh, that, is unfortunately a reality. I mean, the fucking Gulf of Mexico is, I mean, it, there's a dead zone there. We, yeah. uh, and, and so, you know, we have made parts of the world, um, we've made our ability to live off of it and be sustained off of it. Very difficult and dangerous. In fact, like hazardous, um, it's hard to actually envision, what the future looks like in Eastern Kentucky, I could probably map it out the next five or 10 years, but the next hundred years is really hard to tell because yeah, cap industrial capitalism, um, basically made this place into a death trap. And so there are places in this region that I do think are very dangerous for people to live. I mean, the region isn't uniform. It's a very large geographic area, and some places are safer than others. But the part of the Kentucky River watershed that I live in can be very dangerous for that reason. But at the same time, like, I do think <coughs> that... I, I do hesitate to be resigned to a kind of determinism when it comes to a lot of that stuff because um, I am in favor of techno technology, technological mm -hmm. innovation or whatever, just not the kind that says we need like artificial intelligence or we need to meld <laughs> our brains with fucking computers and, <laughs> and that kind of stuff like that yeah, to no me. Thanks. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not for that. But mm -hmm. like, if there are ways that we can make our, you know, post-capitalist society um, ecologically sound using technology, then we have to take that. Like that, mm -hmm. I think that is something that we have to do, and I think we can do. I mean, yeah. like I, you know, Jamie, I know you're a fan, or or once were at one point in time. But I really like the Kim Stanley Robinson books, and it's like this yes. is. This mm -hmm. is not, um, you know, I think that 
humans have shown remarkable ability over time to shape the environment in various ways and to live with it. And I think that uh, it's not just as simple as going back to old practices. Like we've changed the biosphere to such an extent now to where that's not possible. But we do perhaps have the technology to where we can have that situation in the future. I'm just not an expert, and I'm not sure what that that looks like. Um, but uh, I do know that for us to get there requires a specific, well, maybe not specific, you have to be a little agile, but does take steps, and mm-hmm. those steps are political. And, uh, and so I guess that's where... That's where we come in, and then the engineers come in later. Yeah. They figured that out. Yeah. I, I just wanted I mean, to one add. Of the, go ahead, Jamie. Go ahead. Wh- one of the intermediate steps there seems like it would obviously be building public housing for people to live in for yeah. free, which is, you know, not necessarily communist. Uh, lots of social democratic countries have done that in one way or another, but it seems like that is still sort of an unthinkable step to take in a place where the property relation is so strongly enforced. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, and that is the, as it pointed out in the piece, that's the red line they will not cross. They, they Mm -hmm. cannot. And that's why Andy Bashir has to say, we don't know why this is happening. Mm -hmm. It's like, they can't, for them to admit that they would have to, make concessions, one of which would be, yeah, free housing. Uh, mm. And again, they, that's unthinkable. Mm. Yeah. I just wanted to say before we close out, like while you were talking, Terrence, um, you know, I am I think I mentioned on on the other podcast we recorded, The Trillbillies, but I've been getting into the Russian cosmos, you know, and I was telling yeah. you guys about um, how they were futurists who uh, thought that humanity had to unite behind a common cause of conquering death and then bringing back everybody who ever lived. But a big part of it, too, is world making and world building, you know? Yeah. And like literally like creating an environment um, that's off world, right, that is hospitable to our conditions. And, you know, this you can go into like, you know, these uh, these uh, uh, cylinders that you know, O'Neill cylinders, they're called that have like a habitable environment in space and all this grand science fiction. But like we literally already do that on Earth. Right. Like we yeah. just do it for horrible ends. And I do <laughs> think that like, you know, if we have the technology, I mean, I don't know what we can do now, but I mean, if we have the technology, like for God's sake, to build a rocket that can fucking go to the moon, I'm pretty sure we can figure out how to make eastern kentucky or jackson mississippi or pakistan right but again as jamie as you guys were saying these involve political decisions right right in order to commandeer that technology for the benefit of all and we got we got sorry techno determinists (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) sorry elon musk fans (laughs) yeah i don't know why you would be listening to this podcast but no jamie Jamie, we're gonna do we're gonna do what they did in the book that we just read, where the uh, revolutionaries storm the equivalent of SpaceX uh, militarily and commandeer all of the technology and equipment violently. And um, no, I'm I'm not oh, yeah. kidding. But no, <laughs> this is a book, by the way. This is a book, by the way. I'm describing the plot of a fucking book. Damn, it sounds so. pretty tight. It is pretty tight, yeah. Yeah, I think you would like it. I'll send you a link to it. That's pretty tight. Um, but yeah. all right, yo. Uh, I guess uh, Terrence, you still have time to go with us to. Uh, I was about to call it the fun half. But it's not the fun half. It's the bonus. <laughs> it's the bonus. The bonus is always the fun half. <laughs> it is. It is. Indeed. Uh, indeed. Um, I think Sam Cedar might have trademarked the fun. <laughs> he half, trademarked so. that. 
bonus. We got to lawyer up then. All right. Um, yeah. All right. Then. Uh, all right. Shit, I'll close it out then. Uh, yo, Terrence, thank you. Uh, man, thanks so much, man, for uh, coming on to talk about. Thanks for um, having me. Thanks no, for man, having thank me. you, man. Because uh, I've been uh, want to have you on to talk about this because um, I know you've made the rounds and obviously we talked about it on our own show. But, um, you know, I don't I know, this is something that in the news now you're just not. Nobody's talking about it anymore. Yeah. And I think well, it's part, you know. Mm-hmm. It's fun to to add some theory to it, you know, exactly. to add some exactly. theory and history and everything to it. Exactly. It's so important if you want to understand, like, literally anything. Absolutely. And this is, you know, something I've been bashing away at over my entire short career as a right. podcaster. So yeah. I really think we're of two minds. We're we're of one one mind. I don't know. We're <laughs> we're three peas in a pod. Three peas in a pod, indeed. Indeed. Um, is, uh, is there anything you want to plug before yeah. you go? Just just my my podcast. Perhaps you've heard of it, the Trillbillies. <laughs> yes. The Trillbillies where you can catch me as well. Hell yeah. Well right. thanks again man and um I'll see all of you beautiful listeners in the bonus.